Blog Talk Radio. Not at all. We're staying in. Um, 
And, of course, um, had this been any other semester, that probably would not have been the case with all the no. meetings that usually happen during, throughout the semester. And Thursday is a meeting day for a lot of folks. Um, oh, however, um, we're living in the age of COVID-19, or, you know, we're hoping that it's not the age of COVID-19. We're living in the age of Trump, which brought on COVID-19, or at least the, the worst aspects of COVID-19. And so that means that the notion of library um, has shifted to the digital, um, but it doesn't mean that the library has, has disappeared. It's still there. Oh, so, no. And in um, fact, we're probably stronger than ever. <laughs> tell, us about, tell, tell us about that. So, you know, our library, like many libraries, when uh, everything decided to shut down, had to pivot to online services. And it's funny, in talking to my colleagues, both at academic libraries and at public libraries, we feel like we transitioned rather well from providing all of these services and uh, resources in person to online, since that's a transition we've been doing for the good part of a decade. Um, most libraries these days, most of their resources are available online when the publishers uh, want to work with us. So we were able to provide our students with books we were, or e-books. We were able to provide our students with articles. And it's the same thing for public libraries. They were very easy, easily able to pivot to providing these online resources and doing things like digital story times and digital teaching uh, simply because we're all at home. And, you know, many of us recognize parents also need these resources as well. So um, we're trying to reach Absolutely. out to working parents to, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and speaking of which, this idea of, you know, for students, for our students, if they want, um, if they need books, um, how hard is it for them to get digital versus um, physical books in, during COVID-19? And when it comes to reference text, are students still using the physical books or are they relying on the online version of reference text? Well, there's a lot of a lot of answers in library work tend to be it depends. And in this case, it does depend. In terms of reference works, our print collection of reference books aren't really used by students or faculty or frankly, even librarians these days. And that's because in this day and age, a good reference work needs to be able to update quickly. So a lot of these materials are available online. Or sometimes, I honestly have to admit, you get a faster answer from Google or Wikipedia. Obviously, you have to check to make sure that's reliable, but you can get a lot of good information online these days. In terms of the books themselves, it depends on that item that the student wants. If it's a regular book that's available as an ebook, that can be pretty easy to get. Um, libraries do tend to pay a bit more to have that digital copy available for checkout, but we can usually get it. If it's a textbook, most publishers, and I'm going to say the vast majority, probably upwards of 95%, will not sell digital textbooks to libraries. They just won't do it, uh, no matter how much we ask. And we'll even beg, be like, please, please sell us this textbook. We'll even pay, you know, three, four, five, six times the cost, but they just won't sell those to us. And so when it comes to textbooks, 
that can be quite the burden to our students to try to get a textbook if they are not able to purchase an e-copy themselves. So what we've been encouraging our faculty to do is to look at OER, or Open Educational Resources, and these are born digital textbooks that tend to be created just like regular textbooks, except they are put online for free. And an OER to be truly OER comes with a Creative Commons license that's, that allows it to be freely used and freely adapted. So people can take an existing OER textbook and then adapt it for their specific course needs or their specific university needs. And so we've been trying to push many of our faculty to start considering that. And luckily, this is a growing field. So there are hundreds, if not thousands, of these OER textbooks now available. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I, um, I'm a humanities professor. I work in the English program. Um, and I teach English majors, but I also teach non-majors um, who are required to, um, to take writing courses before they get into their majors courses. So um, one of the challenges that I've had, um, which has been somewhat abated by recent events, in our, in our culture, one of the challenges that I've had um, has been to find, um, you know, open resources that cater to the needs of um, scholars such as myself um, who do black feminism, intersectionality, um, queer theory, queer lit, um, you know, gender, um, gender issues and, and, and whatnot. Um, feminism, quite frankly. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and so what, what is, what's really out, what is really out there? I mean, I've had, I've had some good, good luck with Google Scholar. Um, you know, if I'm looking for something that is accessible um, in, a, in a digital way, because quite frankly, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm one of those professors who really does Try to keep the cost down because students might turn out turn down taking a course, uh, taking an elective. If there are too many books um, to, you mm -hmm. know, to, that you have to order. So, what's out there for somebody like me? So, or somebody like my students. OER is still a relatively new movement. So, the books that exist and are used the most are those low-hanging fruits, things like Economics 101, Politics 101, things like that. However, because the movement is growing and people have recognized these gaps in the literature, more stuff is becoming available. Um, there are full libraries online where if you can't use an entire book, you may be able to pick and choose chapters from other books. And we have an online resource guide devoted to OER resources that our faculty can use, and it lists various open textbook libraries, like the most popular one called the Open Textbook Library. But there's also Merlot and OpenStax, to name a few. And what's good about OER is that you can take an existing book and then adapt it to suit your needs. So if there is a specific field you're working in for a class, you can write your own chapter. And so what we're also trying to do, since this is a new movement, is to work with and encourage administration to accept writing and creating OER and even adapting existing OER as a part of the tenure package. So as you would publish in a traditional academic journal or as you would publish a traditional academic book, we're encouraging uh, administration to start seeing creating OER as a part of that tenure package to encourage faculty to put their own material out there because that's the only way it gets created. 
Library's goal is to try to encourage the adoption of this, but unfortunately, we are not the scholars in these fields. We can't write black feminism um, textbooks or right. works like that simply because that's not right. our field. So we are hoping to work with faculty to help them find what exists, but then to also create their own material. Wow. Well, that's a big, that's a big one because, you know, one of the, um, you know, one of the, one of the challenges and one of the, uh, one of the pieces that I'm, that I'm actually interested in doing is, um, is actually maybe launching um, an open source journal that is peer reviewed, um, mm -hmm. for one. And number two, um, yes, build a textbook for my students, for my black feminism course, or quite frankly, a textbook for my um, my writing students, because when I teach uh, my writing courses, I'm always um, inclusive of and um, I'm also put into a lot of the activities um, writing about and reading about um, black feminism. So for somebody like me, how would I go about building a, uh, building a textbook for my um uh, for my courses, if not for next spring, then maybe for next fall. How would I do that? So the first thing we would encourage faculty who are interested in creating their own OER is to meet with their librarian representative. In this case, it happens to be me. So you and I can start having a conversation about this. Um, depending on what campus you're at, that service might be available through your library. It also might be available through your teaching and learning center. And some campuses that have been at the forefront of this have their own open textbook offices. And from there, we can start looking at tools to help you build your textbook. And there are great out-of-the-box tools already available to help faculty create these course materials. The first one that comes to mind is LibreText, where basically it's an online tool that helps you create uh, the textbook from the ground up. Um, and so then we can also, once the text is written, look at where do we want to house this material. You know, if UDC got really excited about this, we could possibly create our own repository, open repository for these materials. If not, we can work with one of the existing repositories out there. Um, and it's very easy to slap a Creative Commons license on these things. I do it all the time with some of our library's works. Um, so it's more of having a dialogue with that person who can facilitate this on campus. And again, that's usually through the library or your center for teaching and learning. Okay, all right. So I guess you and I need to have an appointment. <laughs> fairly soon, fairly, fairly soon. I just got an email out of nowhere. Well, we we want you to have your your, your textbook ordered. Huh? <laughs> and then you remember, oh, it's November. November is next week. Yeah, and I would. Yeah, I would say, you know, if you're interested in this, your library or your Center for Teaching and Learning is probably already trying to get your attention. So check your email. In fact, we um, are going to be sending out an invitation to faculty uh, next week, actually, inviting them to attend an online workshop where they will get to engage with existing um, open textbooks. And the goal at the end of that is to have them start to review, like submit a formal review of an existing textbook in the open textbook library. And in return, they will get a $200 stipend. So these are things that probably already exist on your campus. So we always encourage faculty to keep an eye out for that. So our campus is going to be doing something like that. And I definitely want to be a part of that, a part of that workshop. Um, turnaround time. What how long does it usually take? When I when I think about textbooks, I usually 
uh, think about um, the fact that you usually have, um, you know, a large group of, of editors and, you know, and then you have, you know, the people who actually put, put, put the textbook together and then you have another set of re- reviewers and, and then it goes through mm-hmm. yet another process. But at the end of the day, the idea or the notion is is that um, <laughs> one year usually is a that's a quick that's a quick turnaround. Um, mm-hmm. but realistically speaking, if we're talking about a textbook, um, a lot of times I see books that are you know you, you have ads for books or textbooks that are supposedly coming out, um, and I don't know maybe two or three years um, average. Um, am I am I out of am I out of date on that one? Catch me up on that one. Well, for the you know formal printed published textbook, yes, there's definitely a longer process simply because partly the printing process because you have to format things, you have to um, print it, you print drafts, you do edits. So anytime you have to print something, simply having to deal with layout really does slow things down, and then having it having to send it to reviewers and then include their edits does also uh, expand the timeline on that. Open textbooks, um, it depends on what you want to do. If you're adapting an existing open textbook, depending on how many changes you want to make, you can do that in a month or two. If you are creating a brand new open textbook from scratch, um, on average, it seems like the turnaround time is about a year to a year and a half, simply because there are these new tools where basically you input your text you drop in your images. It's more like creating a digital file. And then in terms of the review process, you put the material up and then people review it in their own time. So this is why we offer that we're offering this new stipend program to encourage our faculty to review existing textbooks because the peer review process seems to happen a little bit afterwards as opposed to a part of the process. Um, so it, again, it depends. How long do you want your textbook to be? You know, how heavy is it in images and graphics? and videos and things like that. Um, some open textbooks right. I have seen get done really quickly. Others, they take two to three years because they're involving new scholarship and research. New scholarship and research, and plus you have to deal with um, questions about permissions if you're, um, mm-hmm. if, if, if you're trying to include something um, that's already been published by somebody else in a, in, in a traditional yes. fashion. And that's, um, and that's actually one of the one of the challenges because when you teach a course like black feminism or if you are inclusive of black feminism or, you know, it, it, stuff like that, um, then, you, then, yeah, you're going to, um, you're going to be using um, a lot of materials that have come before you, right? Your scholarly brothers and sisters who, um, who've written, who came up with their, uh, came up with ideas and whatnot, you're adapting it in the classroom and you want students to be able to read it, um, and even if you were putting together a, a textbook, that textbook is still talking to those other books and, you know, those other peer-reviewed, um, you know, journal articles. And so mm-hmm. um, how do you make that happen without running into the copyright issues? So, it, again, it, uh, everything comes down to it depends. It depends on the context and the amount of material you are using. 
There is Creative Commons licensing, so we always encourage people, if they are going to create or adapt an OER, to use material that is already available through the Creative Commons or has a Creative Commons license. That said, it doesn't right. mean you can't use copyrighted material. Just like any other scholarship, we do have fair use available to us. And fair use for education okay. tends to be given a bit more, you know, freedom and flexibility simply because it is for education. And if you follow the four factors that tend to come with fair use, you're not likely to steal the market away from that original source. That said, if you want to use the, you know, the full, you know, copyrighted song, that's not going to be possible without getting the licensing. And then in an OER situation, um, since it has to be adaptable, that, song then needs to be licensed to be reused by others. So things like songs and images do complicate things. Yes. But if you're just writing right. a plain text, you have fair use at your discretion in the existing scholarship. And so that's how you can incorporate some um, copyrighted material in an OER work as long as it follows uh, the boundaries of fair use. Right. And again, I should have said this, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> so this is not legal uh, advice. <laughs> Right, right. Well, and, and, and we're not asking, we're, we're not necessarily talking about, um, you know, legal, legal matters, although we are, in a sense, the library, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you, you're, you're dealing with lots of laws. I'm quite sure that there are people who specialize in, um, you know, in law, creative, um, creative license and whatnot. Um, oh, yeah. So well, see, it's, talk, it's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was yes. just going to say the copyright so, office itself is housed in the Library of Congress. That's how closely these are bound together. And speaking of Library of Congress, um, about two years ago, um, I started going to um, some of their programming, and I discovered something that apparently, um, and through, through a series of conversations, apparently the Library of Congress, they still get lots of boxes of material. Um, oh, yes. In, in other words, there's a, there's a historical aspect of the library, preserving history, preserving our, our culture and whatnot. Um, in light of COVID-19, um, whatever ventures that one may have thought of in terms of actually maybe connecting um, with Library of Congress that has to probably be put on pause, um, but what what kind of work um, has um, have you all done um, at the library with the Library of Congress and maybe connecting with departments? So we at at UDC do not you know directly work with the Library of Congress. They are a government library. They are their own institution. But that said, since we are in D.C., we do encourage our students and faculty to make use of their facilities um, simply because right. they are here. Our students and faculty can get a reader card, meaning they can use the reading rooms available to them. Um, there's also material right. at the Library of Congress that's not available anywhere else in the world. They have done astounding levels of work in digitization, particularly in regards to photographs and moving images, um, so movies and things like that. And so, you know, we always encourage our students, you know, you have that resource available to you, and they have put an astounding amount of resources online. So when I am demonstrating in classes, 
um, where students can go to find materials. Yes, I show them what we have at our library. Yes, I show them what's available at the DC Public Library. But depending on the class, I also show them what's available at the Library of Congress because it's not just your typical right. books. It also includes things like um, archives and personal papers and government documents and um, Tangentially related to that, there are congressional research service reports. So all of these things are available to our students. And, you know, this is global, too, since they do have such a strong web presence. A lot of this material not only is available currently online, but if you really need it, um, the library does try to prioritize requests. So if people are putting right. in digitization requests, you could also get material that way. Right. And, and that's the and, – and, and so there are two things that come to mind, and that is the, the encroachment of digital humanities. Um, when, and, of course, when I first started seeing it, I associated it with, with the library. And until um, so I realized that we all have been doing digital humanities for some time. We just haven't um, recognized it or we have not. We didn't, we, we didn't have a, a real name for it. Um, the other thing that... that um, that also comes to mind um, besides um, digital humanities. I'm also um, thinking about the Schomburg Library, which is part of the um, New York um, City Library um, system. Um, and they have a, a website that, um, that brings um, black history, black American history, um, and black and, and the African diaspora history. Um, to a much wider audience than mm -hmm. NYC. Um, and so what do we have in comparison or in contrast to um, the Schomburg? So in comparison, our um, materials of that nature are much smaller, and it's partly because our archives are not yet fully digitized. Most of the University uh, of the District of Columbia's archives are related to university history. Um, so materials, you know, related to Federal City College and things like that, we do have that material. It's just we need to go about digitizing it. And what a lot of people don't understand is just how expensive digitizing print materials is, both in money and time. Um, prior to my current position, I was the head of preservation at Catholic University. And again, they have a lot of print materials, but going about digitizing a single item, it can take hours to digitize a single book because it's such a slow process to turn the page, to get things situated properly, to properly crop it. And then you have to, you know, get the file ready um, in a manner that is both usable by the user on an open website, but then also meets digital preservation standards. And these are, it's a complex thing and it's still a relatively new field. So we do have a wonderful archivist at our university who he does digitize materials upon request, but it's not his only job. He's also a reference librarian. So it's one of those things where we want to do it. We desperately want to get it. We have a lot of material that we could digitize that we think would be valuable not only to our students but others who want to look at the history of the only land grant or the the only urban land grant institution in the country. These are things we want to make available. It's just we need the time and the resources to do it. Um, and we're hopeful and that and probably some scholars um, to, to to help yes. you um, with that. Yes. So my next question is. What's stopping you from going to NEH? 
Uh, nothing is stopping has... us but time. <laughs> the time. And, and probably hands, yeah. hands on board. So I mm-hmm. consider something like that to be quote-unquote low-hanging fruit. So if, mm-hmm. um, so if you had humanities professors, um, say from English, um, you know, um, helping or at least putting, putting a handout, starting a, a, a small step towards a, a much larger, what do you think that could do? Um, for the I think it, I think it would be wonderful because often, often these grants come with a requirement that you make the materials available to others. So we would love to work with, you know, scholars both at our institution or at others who might have previously worked at these institutions to talk to them about, hey, let's put a grant together. Let's get one of our current collections that we think is a priority. Let's put it in context. Let's share the importance of it with others. Because the thing I've learned um, in the past when I have applied for a grant or two is that you need to have a project that is compelling to others and that fulfills a purpose and a need that others see. And so I would love to be able to put online material that relates to that. And so working with scholars who can see that purpose while we have the material, it's a natural collaboration for us. Wow. And so I've been thinking about this actually for the last few years, um, talking to some of the older um, faculty like Elsie Williams, Brenda Brown, and, and some of the other folks who've been here for some time, and they tell me about this spectacular history of the older versions of UDC and the new, and, the, and then the version that came in the mid seventies. And I'm thinking to myself, where are the materials? Where's the history of that? And we don't have a history department, but it doesn't mean that we can't. Um, make something available to our library in history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, institutional history, to me, um, it's vital, um, even if it's dealing with some unpleasant issues. I mean, look at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. I mean, they literally, oh. they literally sold people down the river to, to sustain themselves. And so, as far as I'm concerned, they have blood on their hands. So, it's got work to do. And it looks like they're doing it. Um, but in other such as Federal City and some of the other um, some of the other versions of what is now known as UDC. One of the questions that I've had is, well, what do we have um, available about the people of this city, the mm-hmm. the non-favorite ones, the non-VIPs, black folks, brown folks, and white mm-hmm. folks who you know who, who basically kept this city going? What do we have? What do we have yeah. available in archives that perhaps could be digitalized that could tell us a bit more about what it means, what it meant, and what it still means to be a black woman or a, a, um, a black woman, mm-hmm. a black girl, um, a black man or a black boy um, in the District of Columbia? Um, and what was it like um, coming upon an institution when it, um, you know, was flourishing in its um, in its in its early prime? And so I've yeah. always wondered about that, especially when it comes to writing, especially when it comes to all of the creative people. Um, Gil Scott Heron apparently taught at, 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 an, at an earlier version of UDC at, at some point in time. And I'm like, wow, where's the history? Where's, where are the archives? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, those are some of the, the questions. And so, you know, it would probably help. Maybe that first step, what actually do we have? You know what I mean? Yes. I don't know. 
Yeah, and I would have to defer to our archivist on that. He definitely has a much better understanding of what's in the collection. But I know just in my um, limited workings with the archive, we do have things like yearbooks. We have things like print photographs that I, in my work, have been trying to put online for our students because the joy of archives isn't that you're seeing the MVP stories. You're seeing the everyday student stories. You know, the person who decided, I wanted to go to school to learn something so I can better the city I live in. And those are the stories we really like to celebrate. And that's the joy of archives because you're finding that material. You're finding the letters that people wrote to their advisors. Or you're finding, you know, the institutional history left behind by, say, an old Spanish department and things like that. Archives are one of the funnest parts of library work simply because you don't know what's in them. I can't count on a single hand or even, you know, all my hands and toes, how many times archivists have dived into their own collections to come up with something they never knew existed. And I have um, a little bit more re or, uh, history with this myself because my dad happens to be, um, although he's retiring soon, the head librarian at the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So I grew up around a library in an archive where they were constantly uncovering new material to share with everyone else as they were, you know, going through their collection because digitization is new. Um, so, so many right. times people just said, hey, I'm donating this, this to the library. And they're like, great, they took it and put it on a shelf somewhere. And so libraries always have a backlog of work. So we're going through and trying to create what's called the metadata for this material as we digitize it. So that's sharing things like, where did it come from? Who donated it? Who's in these files? Who's great. in these stories? And so it's heavily intensive Absolutely. work, but it's such fun work because you get to share stories of everyday people. Right. And as, as somebody who has a huge number of books, papers, I mean, I still have all, I have all of my papers from um, my graduate student days. They're sitting somewhere in my, in, in, you know, in some plastic bins in my storage unit. Um, but I also have, um, um, other, you know, other other materials and whatnot, and looking at what I quote unquote quote have, so to speak. I may not have cash uh, readily available, but I certainly do have um, quite a paper trail from my own work, mm -hmm. as well as from the work that I've done in in classes. And to me, archiving, um, you know, being able to to leave something behind um, so that somebody else can learn from what you've done. To me, that's important. And we've had faculty who have gone on to glory. And I've also wondered, well, what happened to, what happened to their papers? I know where the Audrey Lord papers are. They're at Spelman College, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and we know that Tony Morrison's papers are, are housed someplace. We know that James Baldwin's papers are, are housed someplace. Um, but we are now living in an age in which, um, well, if you are, you know, an everyday scholar, so to speak, your papers do count, especially if you spend a, a long period of time at a given institution. You get the history of an institution, the changes, not just the changes in the scholarship, but the changes in the culture and attitudes towards, towards people. And that's when we start getting into diversity and digital humanities, because of course one of the issues is is that with the um, sort of with di digital humanities on the front plate, one of the um, challenges, of course, is 
making sure that as we practice digital humanities, that we are um, bringing in um, those scholars um, who focus on writers of color, artists of, of, of color, women scholars um, of, of all colors, LGBTQIA um, scholars and artists. And, of course, the question is, where do we need to go um, as teachers um, at a public university, as scholars, um, as researchers, where do we need to go in order to make, um, to make our offerings and what we um, offer students much more diverse? It's one thing to have courses that, um, that, um, that are um, looking at the world from a, a diverse perspective. It's quite another thing. Um, it's quite another question as to what what do we have in the ground? For instance, just looking at English, um, looking at our at our page, um, what would you say um, is missing from ours? We're an HBCU. Does our does our page reflect that? Mm-hmm. Be honest. It's, be cruel, because it's, it's not about the library. It's, it's about the library and the scholars, English programs. Yeah. So if there's something that, we're, that we need to do, what, what would you say I would think, be a wonderful way of diversifying? So in terms of diversifying, you know, I've had this previous conversation with you and others. I do have colleagues over at Howard University, and, you know, uh, when we have meetings together about library stuff, we are talking about these issues. It comes down to that phrase, decolonizing. We need to decolonize the curricula. You know, everyone studies English, and so many people default to thinking that's William Shakespeare. And yes, Shakespeare is important, but what about the, you know, the stories and the narratives that existed elsewhere, you know, on the African continent, you know, with other, um, you know, BIPOC authors or storytellers? Because again, when it comes to English, I see that as the the study of stories uh, more than I see it as you know, English as a language, again, my personal viewpoint. Right. And so it's right, exploring right. what is out there. And so not all stories were written down, and we seem to default to thinking that stories have to be in a written format. And so I would love to explore the storytelling that tended to happen. You know, we study Homer, and we study the Odyssey and the Iliad. Those weren't originally written down. Those were, you know, verbally shared stories. So why can't we do the same thing with stories that came from Africa or came from India or came from China or came from the um, Native American indigenous population and, you know, the, the indigenous populations from Australia and Canada? Like there are all these stories that we're missing. We're missing the joy right. of diversity um, simply by trying to focus on, well, what's always been done. And, you know, I – I am new to the HBCU landscape. I have only been at UDC for the past two years, but it's been such an enlightening and enriching experience for me to hear the stories of others and to see how this institution teaches its students and, you know, wants to share the joy of what it means to come from such a rich and diverse background. And so in terms of what can we do better as a university? I just think it means, yes, we can teach the basics that have always been. Those are important, but we can expand. You know, we don't have to have four or five of the traditional courses on, you know, 
historical drama. We can look at other things as well. And in terms of what the library can do, we need to work with our faculty one-on-one to hear about what you are teaching, what is in your course. Um, we would love to get our hands on everybody's, everybody's syllabi so we can see what you're teaching, so we can buy those resources you're using, but also related resources to help your students explore you know, those stories more and those texts more. We want them to engage with these things. And so we are constantly trying, you know, we're reading the, the course lists as they come out and we're seeing, oh, what's popular, you know, and what are students taking? Because we want to be able to populate our stacks and our online resources with those materials. And so it's an ongoing right. conversation that we need to have with faculty um, because we are here to support you and our students. Um, I can't speak for every department on campus, but I do want to say the library has a tendency to always want to take on more work. Um, so we are happy to be like, you need that, we're going to get it for you. You need help doing that, we're going to do that for you. You know, it's, 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 it's a fun time. And I feel you. I, I, I definitely feel you on that. Um, and I, I think that sometimes we have this idea or notion that the library has got, got it all. We're not oh, no, we, we, it is impossible yeah, to have it all. Yeah. No, especially with questions about questions about funding. Um, it's, I, one of the one of the things that I've noticed um, for the entire time that I've been here um, is that there seems to be a misconceived notion about what you know what libraries need. Um, a misconceived notion, perhaps of lower funding than than. Than, um, than, than properly needed, and that the path towards moving up the food chain as far as being a research institution, it really does center on the library. If you're not properly funding it, then you can't have a research one, two, or three mm-hmm. institution, can you? And I don't think that that's necessarily just towards UDC. Um, I see that as being a um, being part of a larger issue. Um, in, in higher education in the United States, um, and probably when you when you look at the ways in which humanities has been whittled down, um, of course the, the remaining question is, well, what what's in the library, and what what kind of energy is put on strengthening um, strengthening up uh, that that um, that institution, the library. Um, and it's not a simple matter of just having some old dusty books. Um, libraries have to be updated. Uh, the weight of books themselves yeah. requires that you be in a building, you know, uh, that's, that's secure and strong enough um, to be able to tolerate, um, you know, the physical books that are still had. But even with that, if we're talking about digital, we're still talking about money, aren't we? We're still talking about software. Yeah. Um, and so one of the, um, one of the things that I noticed, because you and I had a meeting, and one of the things that I noticed was that um, on our particular page, the English page, we, we, yes, we have the Shakespeare. We have the traditional. Um, I think we have something with Harlem Renaissance. I think we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and so we have those, but those are nice, long-standing, but now we need to, now we need to, we need to build and so, for instance, um, I'm finding um, in my own work as, um, as a digital humanities person, um, I'm finding that there are a lot of syllabi that are floating about 
lot of websites with syllabi, a lot of blogs with syllabi, a lot of blogs put together by academics such as myself, some of those more personal than others, some of those are strictly scholarly, and there's a lot of in-betweens in, in there. And so what could we be doing um, as professors to enrich those pages with, with, with those materials and to make it, and while at the same time making the distinction between personal blogs and professional blogs, for instance, making the distinction between peer-reviewed sources and non-peer-reviewed. Um, what could we be doing? So one of the things that our library and most libraries are trying to do is creating campus-by-campus uh, campus what are called digital repositories. And these are places where our scholars, both faculty and students, will be able to put materials that they have created, the scholarship that they have created, to be accessed by others basically in perpetuity as long as they provide the license for that. And this is a new movement in, mo well, relatively new movement in most libraries simply because we are recognizing the richness that comes out of our faculty's offices. It used to be a faculty member would retire and they'd pack up all their books and take them home or they'd pack up all their books and give them to another faculty member and same thing with their papers. And what we're trying to do is to encourage our faculty to be like this scholarship that you are making every day, why not deposit it to the library's online digital repository where others can access it as well. Because there is a richness in your work, even if it's not technically published. Um, it, this is something called uh, digital asset management or um, personal digital archiving. And we are encouraging where we can people to take a look at what do you have? Um, a lot of people just don't know. They've been collecting all of these resources they're interested for so long. And we'd love the library, you know, I can't think of a single library that would say no to trying to take this on if they have both the mental and um, the physical bandwidth to do it. And it's something that every right. library is starting. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of work, but there are ways to do it where a faculty member is like, hey, I wrote this article. I'm going to upload it now to the digital repository. And it can be rather seamless once you get things up and running. And in terms of putting that material online, it's almost always a matter of marketing and university policies. Like, what are you allowed to share on your website? Some schools are more locked down with others, whereas others are like, hey, you're a faculty member with a blog. We'll link to that from our department website. And so right. it's always fun exactly. to see what faculty come up with. Yeah. And so sometimes well, it's taking things down and being like, do we have to be so stringent about what we post? And, you know, um, it, it depends on university and department rules sometimes. Right. Well, I mean, and, and, and also, you know, adherence to um, or non-adherence to, um, to academic freedom. I mean, as we're talking, I'm looking mm -hmm. at, this, I'm looking at the, the show page, and I'm like, do I have? Yes, absolutely. I do have episodes from my podcast show that are no longer available um, on, online, but they are available on my hard drive. And I just moved them and to one of my external drives. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that's something I mean, that's ripe like for that. inclusion in a digital archive. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, I have an entire I have an entire body of work that I never did anything with because I thought I was going to be writing a, a, a book um, on a on a particular um, artist, and I ultimately decided that I was going to uh, move on to to something else, and that something else was was Afro 
futurism, and then, of course, <laughs> digital humanities came out of that. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't have validity, and it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that it doesn't have possibilities. I just never did anything with it. A lot of resources. And I don't know anyone working in academia who does not have a zillion and one um, bookmarks. There's bookmarks. Oh, yes. There's Facebook, <laughs> Facebook's version of bookmarks. Then Twitter has its own version of bookmarks. And so if you have that or if you have your own Twitter history, um, and I have, I have a, a very I have a Twitter history, this particular account in particular goes back to maybe about 2009, 2010. I have another Twitter account that I haven't used in years. But it's still up, and there's a history to that. Tweets, texts, messages, all of those actually do count. I use texts, I use tweets, I use Facebook entries when I write poetry, um, when I write essays, when I do research. I look for key words, key phrases, and whatnot, and then I blow it up. Um, because words in themselves, they have their own history. And... Um, and they have their own, it, words have their own politics. That's why we use the, the term dog whistle whenever um, mm-hmm. Mr. Idiot in the White House, I'm sorry, I'm just not going to be nice about him. Um, <laughs> whenever Idiot uh, says something, you know, he, he uses dog whistle, and some people may not be familiar with it, depending upon how long you've been in the United States. But you've been here long enough, then you know if somebody says words like ghetto or urban, you know that. It's another way of referring to black people, poor black people in particular, in a derogatory fashion. Or if someone mm-hmm. says, well, you want your neighborhood safe, what does that mean? For one, and that's mm-hmm. going to mean something different from a man. Um, but racially speaking, culturally speaking, um, social class-wise, um, for some people, um, the word safe is, is, is a matter of comfort. For others, um, it's a signal that um, you're under attack because you're not, part of the, the crew. You're not part of the group. In other words, you're an outsider, a minority. Um, and so um, I'm kind of thinking that you guys have this have these possibilities that we really need to kind of get into. But maybe that part of that is maybe a need of rediscovery of sorts um, for an appreciation for language, an appreciation for information. Um, an appreciation for history, an appreciation for, um, you know, reaching out to the community because ultimately there it is. What do we do to reach out to the community, to folk who are not students here, but they're members of the community? What can we do better as scholars to make it easier for you all to build the apparatus to be able to connect to the community? Mm-hmm. You know, and half the time that's just telling us what you have and what you're interested in. Because while we can do as much outreach as we want saying, hey, here's what we have, you need to tell us what you need. And so we are trying, you know, my position is new. It did not exist at our library two years ago because we 
you know, our director found this need that we needed to reach out to faculty. So my job is to open the lines of communication to hear about what are you working on? Like, it's fascinating. I can't, I can't think of a single academic librarian who's not fascinated by the work that other faculty are doing. We will happily jump on things and be like, oh, you know what? I heard a little bit about that. Let me find more resources for you. So oftentimes right. it's just hearing about what it is you are working on. Um, and then we love sharing. Um, I, most librarians are more than eager to share. So if we hear about what you're working on and what you need, we can find other people to connect you to. Um, we have, you know, right. our job is to search and find and to search and connect. And so our skills aren't so much being the experts in a certain area. Our skills are in connectivity and finding those things and connecting people to what they need and who they need. And luckily, because we live in such a great city, I have been able to establish connections with the D.C. Public Library, and I have former colleagues at the Library of Congress. And so we are working those networks to try to find these things. Um, oftentimes, we call them hidden archives because it can be so hard to find material if you don't know it's out there. And so I'm constantly telling people, hey, have you tried WorldCat? You can search for archives on there and find archival material that's available throughout the world. And so, oh, you, can, you know, you can it, find it really, your own name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can find your own name. Yeah. 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 Go, go, please. Yeah. 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 So for us, mm -hmm. for, you, for you all, go on, please. I interrupt inappropriately at times. Oh, no, you know, it, it just comes down to, yeah, we need to hear about what you're working on. We need to hear about what you're interested in because we can only reach out so much. Um, I can send a ton of emails. I can drop by your, well, I used to be able to drop by people's offices. I can attend meetings. But unless you're willing right. to engage with us and share what you're working on, I can't tell you what's yes. available. You know, I, there, there have been a number of times where a faculty member has reached out and said, we definitely need this resource. You know, why don't we have it? And I'm like, actually, we do have it here it is here's the link here's the related stuff so you know we get, right. we are thrilled when we get to connect with faculty and put them in touch with things that they didn't know existed right well one last thing that i do have to ask you because um, we are um we're coming down on this on the final count um what kind of possibilities do we have as faculty whether it be um for the benefit of the of faculty senate, or for the for the union, or just in general, just for faculty, because we have we have tenured and non-tenured faculty. I've often wondered why we don't have materials in our library or a section for um, uh, some of our newer faculty um, to understand um, some of the basics of shared governance, um, collective bargaining, that kind of thing. And I'm kind of wondering, is there a possibility for us to perhaps build something, um, you know, build a page um, and maybe even um, feature a couple of talking heads, you know, a, a, you know, something like that? Is that possible for us to do something like that? Oh, yes. Yeah, like I said, if you ask a library to do something, we're going to find a way to do it. So this is simply... Right. You know, putting putting in a book purchase request. You're saying, "Hey, I'm interested in this research, and you know, if we we see the need and we see the need for this, we can create an online research guide." Um, that's something we do all the time. This summer, as our part of our pivot to online teaching, we went through and revamped 
all of our existing research guides, and then we created guides we noticed were missing. And, you know, to speak to the moment, we did create a Black Lives Matter guide, and we see that as a collaboration with our students and faculty because we recognize that librarianship on the whole as a profession tends to be extremely white and extremely female. And so when it comes to putting together Black Lives Matter resources, we often need to hear about materials from those with lived experience um, simply because those aren't our stories. You know, I'm a white cisgendered female. It's not my story. It's not my experience. So if I'm going to put resources out there, I need to hear about them. I can do a lot of research on my own and find books related to, um, you know, police brutality and the history of slaveholding and all of that. But until I hear more of your personal story, I can't then go find more resources. And so we try to see libraries as a shared thing. Um, we need to know what you need. We need to know what you're interested in. So we know what to go out to find and purchase. Because yes, we do have limited resources, but that doesn't mean we can't find materials. We will spend money on necessary materials. We will find the money, but we will also find free resources. And so on our Black right. Lives Matter guide, yes, we have access to books we have purchased, but we have also put direct links to very important podcasts about this issue. The 1619 Project, uh, NPR's Throughline has done an amazing set of episodes episodes related to topics under this area. And so we want to engage people. And to do that, we need to have conversations. And this is where libraries, right. they are community engagement centers. They're not just, here's right. a book, here's an article. They are community engagement centers. <laughs> we are seeking to create and, connections. Right. right. Exactly. I mean, you know, and just even with the idea of, you know, shared governance, we need, uh, our students need this information. Um, mm -hmm. Our students don't have a newspaper. They need a newspaper. How do you build a newspaper? If, you know, and so having those kinds of materials available so that the community can come in, the students, the faculty, the staff, administrators can come in, learn about um, some basics, and apply it according, accordingly. And mm -hmm. so this sounds really exciting. This is definitely not our last conversation. So <laughs> I want to invite you to come back. <laughs> Um, you know, come I back. would be happy to. Um, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, this was a great conversation, um, and I definitely want to hear about what where libraries will be in the post 2020 election, the pre vaccination, um, you know, uh, moment. But um, for now. Thank you so much, Megan. This was this was real. This was this this was um, very informative, and you absolutely you're you're a trooper. You're a trooper, and you're an ally. Oh, thank thank you. you so much for your work at UDC. And thank you and for having for the me. DC community. Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. So we're going to end this, um, and for you all who are interested, please do download this. Um, I will more likely than not share this um, with with, um, with colleagues, and I'm definitely um, I've already shared this on Twitter and Facebook and on LinkedIn, and so we'll get more hits with this. And it's also on my blog, um, AfrofuturismScholar.com. And let's not forget about MeganKowalski.com, um, and the spelling. And the spelling, of course, is on the show page. Please do go to UDC Library. Do go to Megan Kowalski's website, um, and let's get active. And hello, UDC.
Take care, y'all. Have a good one. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.